Uh, listen, if you've got your Bibles, we are in a series, and I'd like to invite you to continue with us by opening up to Romans chapter 11. We have been in a series, um, last week I think I might have given it a good title for the entire series. Uh, we are taking a journey through the Forbidden Zone, or the Bermuda Triangle, which has been Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And not a lot of people uh, teach through this section. And um, as I go through it, I understand why, but, but really a lot of it is about how God really is sovereign over all of our, our things, all of our events, everything that's going on with us. It's not about us so much as all my free choice and my free will. We, boy, we as people, we, we want to talk about that and we don't want people to take away my options and my freedom. But the more I read in, in, in Romans 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, the more that I, I see that, that God is the one who's in charge of all of these things, that He is sovereign and he's the one who is, has chosen the nation of Israel. He's the one that, that has reached out and chosen those of us who have chosen to follow Christ. And so um, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the future of the nation of Israel. Um, I, was, um, I was reminded of something as an illustration that somebody told me years ago, and I found it again uh, when I was reading. But a hundred years ago, there's a man named Frederick the Great. Uh, he was king of Prussia. And he was influenced by the, the writings of, of Voltaire, and um, he be, began to become skeptical about the Bible. And, and like, I'm not sure if I should read that this is really from God. Is it really true? And so he turned to his chaplain and he said this. He says, if your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of an easy proof. And, and, and so if it's from God... Give me proof of the, of the inspiration of the Bible. Give me proof in just one word. It should be, you should be able to do that. And the chaplain actually replied, I mean, this is brilliant. He says, yeah, I can give you proof of God's um, bringing us the Bible, the inerrancy of Scripture, the existence of God, all of that in only one word. And, and, and Frederick turns to him and says, well, what is this magic word? And he says, it's Israel. Israel. And Frederick was silent at that point as he started thinking through all the ramifications that, that really there is no way the nation of Israel should exist. It, it shouldn't. I mean, when you think about everything that, that happened with the people of Israel. And there are lots of other proofs, proofs for Christianity, for the existence of God, for the, uh, um, that the Bible can be trusted. But it can hardly be doubted that the continuance of Israel over thousands and thousands of years, it's a phenomenon. It really is. Israel has survived. It grew up to become a nation in slavery. Uh, the people wandered throughout a wilderness and a, and a desert. They were then dispossessed of their homeland, taken in exile to other nations for over for 70 years over 70 years and yet brought back to the land and then basically dispossessed of their homeland for for I mean we're we're talking 1900 years they had been carried away in exile and yet the nation of Israel is a central theme in scripture and we're reading that God is not finished with her yet. So today what we're looking at is we're taking a look at the future of Israel in Romans 11 and that God is still very involved in His plans for Israel. We're going to look at even just a, just a small bit of, of prophecy. I don't know if you know this, but when you read about prophecy in Scripture, almost always prophecy is linked to Israel in some way. So let me just kind of try to catch us up. The question that Paul's been asking is this uh, about the nation of Israel in his day and his age, everything that he saw and people were saying, hey, has God cast away Israel? Because what we see is a lot of these Gentiles that are believing in Jesus. Uh, but what about Israel? And of course, there are Jews who believed in, in Jesus. And, and has God cast away Israel? And he says, no. Uh, he, people are asking, well, are, are they beyond recovery? And he says, not at all. So let's pick up in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 11. He says, I asked then, did they not stumble into an irrevocable fall? Or they did not stumble into an irrevocable fall, did they? 
Absolutely not. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion bring? So let me try to summarize in, in three basic points what we're talking about, what we have talked about, what we're talking about today. Very, very first thing, should have it on the next slide. Through Israel's fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The reason why, if you are a Gentile here, and most of you are, we, we, we are mutts, we are from all over the world, right? And, and if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, what we need to realize is that, that it's because of Israel's fall that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Secondly, salvation of the Gentiles is something that is actually going to make Israel jealous to lead her back to restoration, to lead her back to fullness. It's funny that, that God uses the fall of Israel to bring Gentiles like you and me to understand the gospel. But now what he's going to do is he's going to use people like you and me to bring Israel to jealousy to say, wait a minute, why do they have that? And then thirdly, Israel's fullness is going to bring something beyond words that we really can't imagine, such greater riches to the world. So that's what we're talking about, what we have been talking about, and sort of in a summary, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, today, mostly, we're going to kind of teach through, walk through, try to unpack stuff, and then we're going to have some application at the end. You know, um, on no, no fewer than four different, four separate uh, occasions, if you were to read through the book of Acts, the writer of the book of Acts is Luke. So, you know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and it's the history of the early church. And Luke records how the Jews' rejection of the gospel um, led to the Gentiles, who then, they received it. And numbers of times he writes about it. During the first missionary journey in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, they are speaking to the Jews. And in Acts 13, 46, this is what they say. They said, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now are turning to the Gentiles. Throughout the book of Acts, he says three more times they do this. They say, we're coming to you. We're coming to you first. This belongs to you, but you don't want it. And so because you don't want it, we're going to take it, we're going to give it to, to people all over the place, and they will receive it. And yet, even though Paul goes through all of this stuff, he still, he doesn't give up on his people. He loves his people so much, and he knows that God is not through with them. He's not finished with them. And he knows that one day, Israel, all of Israel will trust in Jesus Christ. And so this is what he says in verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So Paul is just hoping. He's saying, I, I want my fellow you know, Israelites, I want them to see what the Gentiles are receiving and as they see them receiving this, then maybe they would say to themselves, man, why do they get that? Shouldn't we be getting that? I mean, that's really, it's basically theirs. Why should they have all the blessings? Don't we get a prior share of this? And then they end up choosing to see who Jesus really is and they choose to receive Christ. You know, there's, um, there's another pastor. His name is uh, Tommy Nelson. He's down in uh, Denton, Texas. And I've, I've uh, read his books and listened to him for years and years. And, and he tells a story once about how he met a man at a convenience store. So he's just there. I don't know what he's buying or whatever. He talks to him and he sees the man. He's got a name tag. And his last, his, for whatever his last name was, he says, Hey, are, is that a Jewish last name? Are you Jewish? And he says, Yeah, I'm Jewish. And then Tommy got this idea while he's buying his Doritos or whatever he's doing. And he says, you know what? I just want to thank you. And the guy says, for what? And he says, well, I have a Bible. And did you know that out of 66 books in the Bible, 64 were written by Jews? Thank you. And the guy at the counter is like, duh. You're welcome, right? <laughs> what do you say? And he continues on. And Tommy, Tommy, he's a preacher, so you know, you've got to expect some of this from 
weird people like us. Uh, he says, you know, God made a covenant with, with Abraham, and because of that I have been blessed through his descendant, Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem in Israel, and he descended from the tribe of Judah. And he goes on and he says, you know, in the book of Jeremiah, it says that God is making, a, he has made a new covenant. And because of that, I have received blessings of that covenant. And I have a right relationship with God. I have forgiveness. I have rebirth. And that was promised to you by Jeremiah. But I got it. I got in on the deal. Thank you very much. And eventually the man just kind of looked at him and says, Well, wait, how did you get it? Because you're not Jewish. And Tommy says, Let me tell you about that. See, the reason, the reason why I get it is because the Jews didn't want it. The Jews of the first century, they didn't want it. They rejected Jesus. They nailed Him to a cross. On that cross, Jesus Christ became the Passover Lamb who died for your sin and for mine. And then He turns and He says, Larry, that was His first name, uh, have you ever considered the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world? And you know what happened? They had a conversation. And, and they're, they're willing, he's, he's willing to talk with them about it. It was an open conversation. And Larry wasn't offended. He, he wasn't on edge. And Tommy actually, he just treated him with respect, kindness. But they had a conversation. What was Tommy trying to do? He, he was trying to kind of make him a little jealous that he's got the things that are actually promised to, to the Jews. So, so this is why we're asking this question, what in the world happened to the nation of Israel? And, and last week, if you were here, we said it's kind of like this. It's, it's like uh, the person who buys the newest and the fanciest tools, uh, maybe out, out in the workshop, or, or maybe if you're, um, maybe you're a cook in the kitchen, you buy the, the newest and the fanciest, you know, all the tools for, for your kitchen and all that stuff, but you never really cook anything. Um, or you, you got all your tools in, in the shed, you know, and you never build anything. And that's versus a person who hardly has anything. And, and they're like cooking up a storm all over the place. Or, or they've, they've got a few basic well-worn tools and they're building things and they're repairing things all the time. And see, the, the issue is this Israel's workshop or Israel's kitchen, if you will, was beyond compare when it comes to all of the different resources and tools. And the problem is, is they, never they were not using their tools for God's purposes. So God took their tools away. And see, this is where the nation stands today. So we pick up in verse 15. He says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And this is really his main point from here to the end of the chapter. If, if them being cast away was part of reconciling the world, the Gentiles all throughout the world, then what is going to happen one day when Israel accepts the Word of God, that they accept Jesus Christ? What is it when God brings them back into acceptance? And he says it's going to be like life from the dead. See, in the providence of God, the rejection of much of Israel means that God's grace comes to Gentiles. So then their acceptance, when Israel turns to Christ, that means even more grace to the world, even more amazing, just, just stuff that's coming from God that we won't be able to, to even put our, put our hands on. And Paul is telling us one day the Jews will no longer be hardened they won't be partially hardened. They were going to turn to Jesus Christ. And it is going to change the world when it happens. And you see, but Paul's not the only one who says this throughout Scripture. This, is, this happens all over the place. You know, Jesus' uh, disciple John wrote a number of, of letters. And in the book of Revelation, if you were to read there in Revelation 7, he describes something that he's seeing. He's seeing 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 from this tribe, from you know, Dan, from, from you know, uh, Judah. From, and he goes all the way through 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, which means that there are 144,000. And, and they are all out. They have some sp special seal of God on their foreheads. And they're going out and they're telling people about Jesus. 
And, and, and the, the gospel of God, about the kingdom of God. And it says at that time, everybody who's in heaven, they're looking down and they erupt singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they just can't keep silence because they're watching and saying, look at this, God has awakened this people. And they're out and they're sharing the news with, with everybody else. Um, if, if I were to ever ask you about something in the book of Ezekiel. Just tell me something about the book of Ezekiel. How many of you would fail utterly right now? Ezekiel. Like, what? That's, uh, I thought that was just the name of a guy, right? No, Ezekiel. Have you ever read, have you ever heard of Ezekiel 37? Um, in some ways it's actually a little bit creepy. Um, it's kind of the classic biblical text of what a real zombie would look like. Uh, I don't know why Hollywood hasn't picked up on this and, and made a movie about it yet, but there's a section, Ezekiel 37, you should, you should read it, but it's called The Valley of Dry Bones. And, and in this, God's talking to a prophet, his name is Ezekiel, and he, and he gives this vision to Ezekiel, and he brings him to a valley full of dry bones. And I tried to, so on the, uh, the next slide here, I'm gonna, I tried to like, not make it too creepy, because I, I'm looking on the end, I'm like, oh, let me find a great visual. Yeah, they're pretty creepy. So, this is the, the non-creepy version. And, and God gives a vision to, to Ezekiel, and he brings him to this valley of dry bones, and he, says, he asks him a question. He says, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? I mean, these are, these are bones that have been out-weathered, they're hardened. And, and then he tells Ezekiel, I want you to preach a message to the bones. Okay... And he says, surely I will cause breath to enter into you, into these bones, and I'm going to make you live. And so, as Ezekiel preaches, something happens. And the bones, they begin to move and they start to connect. And then as the bones are connecting, there are tendons and ligaments and muscles that begin to form on these bones as they start to connect. And then, and then what you see is skin comes over these bones and, and these bodies, and now they are all standing, but they're not alive. They're all standing. That all of these bones are ready to come to life. Their whole bodies again, but they are lifeless. And, then, and God tells Ezekiel, He says, "Listen, these bones are the whole house of Israel." But listen to what He says, Ezekiel thirty-seven twelve. Therefore, prophesy, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place in you, place you in your own land, and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have performed it, says the Lord. So, so in this, after he preaches, he sees this vision, he sees like, the, you know, the, the zombie bones thing and all, all of that kind of thing. He, he hears this from the Lord and God tells Ezekiel, he says, basically, listen, I want, I want you to tell them that you're going to look for three different things. Three signs about how this is going to happen. The, the very first thing is open graves. Talks about when people have risen from the dead. Does that bring anything to mind? How about this? When, when they have returned to live in their own land, does that bring anything to mind? And then, then lastly, he says, is when His Spirit is living in them. Let me just give you kind of a hint of one of the ways that this happened in Matthew 27, 51. When Jesus died, this is actually kind of a little-known event. Some of you, may, this might be the first time you ever heard this. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. Jesus Christ has died. And then it says, Just then the temple curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. So we know that what God does, it's almost like God takes the, the curtain, He goes, and He rips it to let everybody see what's inside. And then the holiest of holies, no longer is that going to be separated from all the people, that Jesus has done something to change things forever. And there's this huge earthquake and everything that happens. And, and then it says this, And the tombs were opened. And the bodies of many saints who had died were raised. They came out of the tombs after His resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Whoa. 
Ezekiel talks about this when you see the tombs that are open and then it happens when Jesus Christ raises from the dead. It happens with others as, as well. And they're, they're showing everybody. They're talking to people. I mean, this is miraculous. And people are like, oh, whoa. They're, they're, you know, this is crazy. Um, some of you today, um, when Jenny was up here, she was talking about those of you who would fit with that senior crowd on Wednesday, right? The, I hope, I really do. I hope that you go be part of that fellowship. It's going to be a big fellowship. It's going to be a lot of fun. I don't know who's bringing the cookies, but it's going to be good. We're going to have some coffee. It's going to be a great time. I hope you come. But some of you who are seniors, you may remember being alive when Israel was given back their land and they became a nation again back on May 14th, 1948. Before that, they were not a nation. For 1900 years, they had been dispossessed. Whenever has that happened before? It, it never has happened. And it says there will come a time when Israel will turn back to God. And they are going to believe on their Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one whom they have pierced, but they had missed it. And then finally, they come to Him and they believe. And see, this, this is what Paul means when he says, Israel's acceptance of Christ, it'll be like life from the dead. That's what he's talking about. It is going to be a miraculous time, something we look forward to. Um, one of the things I think that is cool about Scripture, about the Bible, is that it doesn't just teach us with one, um, with one method of learning. I mean, you, you read it, you, you hear it, but he tries to give different ways for us to understand. It's like a good teacher you know, in school, right? Some of you guys are teachers. You try to use different methods to get, help people get it. Some people, you have to visualize things in your mind, right? So when I talked about the Ezekiel 37 thing, you're, you're like in visualizing, you know, you got Hollywood in your brain just kind of thinking, you know, this is happening. Same kind of thing here. You've you got to visualize it before you can understand it. So I want you to try to visualize this, okay? And some of you don't have to because you, you, are, um, you are like gardeners, and, and you know how to grow things and whatever you touch, it just flourishes and like tomatoes pop out of your tomato plants and carrots grow and all this kind of stuff, unlike what happens for me often. But, but let, let's just go through this because he's going to give us an illustration. It's a very long illustration. And he wants you to visualize it. He says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he's referring to some Old Testament passages in, in Leviticus talking about a lump that you offer to God. And when you give that to God, God is con going to consider the whole thing holy. But here in verse 17, he says, And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Okay, so Paul is giving us an illustration from horticulture. I know, amazing, right? So some of you would like, horticulture? Oh, I've always wanted to know more about horticulture. And some of you are like, what is he saying? Yeah, so, so the idea is here, you've got... Um, He's giving you certain parts of it. You've got a root. You've got branches. This is like an olive tree. And he says, you know, you've got these wild olive branches. And let's just label this. The wild olive branches are Gentiles. They're Gentiles. They're people who did not know God. They don't have an ancestry that knew God. They worship all sorts of false um, idols, pagan deities, demons, all of that. And then he's going to talk about a natural olive branch, which is like you have this good cultivated olive tree and the natural branches just kind of grew out of that tree and they refer to Israel. And the root of the olive tree here that we're talking about is God's promises, His covenant promises to Abraham. When He, turned, when he said to Abraham, he said, listen, Abraham, I'm just going to choose to bless you. There's nothing you can do in this. I'm going to be the one that's going to provide salvation through your lineage because in your seed all the nations will be blessed. So there's this covenant promise to, to Abraham. And, and because of that, salvation goes to the Jew first and then it also goes to the Greek, it goes to, to the Gentile. But Paul's point is this. Whatever branch is grafted onto the root, it's going to receive the life of the root. It's going to receive the blessing of this root of this tree, the, the promise of, to, uh, to Abraham. And so the idea is this. There's a branch that God removed, took it off, 
cut it, moved it off. Went and found this wild olive tree, cut some branches, grafted it into the other olive tree. I don't know if you know how to do this. You kind of cut it at an angle and you wrap it around, you hold it there, you, 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 you tie it on with twine or whatever. And over a period of time, six months I'm told even, it actually just kind of just grows into that tree. Totally cool. I was reading this thinking, I need to do this this, this spring with something. I need to find something and give it a try, you know? Some of you kids, especially you homeschool kids, you should try this. You let me know how it works. Well, let's read this section and we're going to unpack it. He says, um, verse 18, Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. He's talking to the you as Gentiles. You were taken off of the wild olive tree, cut off from that, and you're now grafted into to the blessing, the, the natural, the cultivated olive tree. And he says, And you will say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. Who's the ones that were broken off, people? The Jews, yeah. And you stand in faith. And he says, Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Now, is He saying, or is He warning, saying, Oh, you better be good. You better watch out. You better not cry. You know, I'm telling you why. God is watching you, whatever. Um, and you're not going to get any presents. No, it, God's giving a warning and, he, and He's saying this. Since the natural branches were, were broken off, that was Israel as a people, He's saying, so the wild ones could be too. That is a group of, of the people. He's not speaking individually here, but He's talking about a group. Okay? Paul has been talking about two groups of people this whole time. The group of Israel... The group of Gentiles. All right. Remember, when Paul says you, he was Jewish. He was in Israel. So he's saying you, you Gentiles. Okay, you were you were grafted in. So don't boast about this. He says the Gentiles could be rejected just like the Jews. There's there's no room for complacency is what he's telling us. I'll, I'll get more to this in just a second. In verse 22, he says this. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell... Severity, but toward you, goodness. And if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they don't continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Now, again, when He's talking about you could be cut off, He's not saying something, He's not talking about Christians that you can lose your salvation. And I'll show you, there's a verse at the end that, that makes that very, very clear. The best example I have for this is this. You go, if you go back in time to the very first churches, the Christians, the first Christians who followed the Lord, they started off in, in the land of Israel and around the Mediterranean area and they were all over Turkey. Man, the hot spot for all the churches in Turkey. And today, what's Turkey like? Nah. It really isn't like anything that has to do much with Christianity. And if you, if you go and you, and you think of like Northern Africa, Tertullian, and all the early church fathers, and they went there at Augustine of Hippo, all from Northern Africa, and you go to those churches, those areas, and all of a sudden when you look today, you're not finding a vibrant area of Christianity. It's, it's like it's, it's gone from there. And if you want maybe a more recent example... I mean, maybe you can look to Italy or, or maybe you should look to Europe. Man, during the age of the Reformation, the 1600s, talk about vibrant. I mean, people were willing to, to lay down their lives for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by faith alone. It's not because of how good you are and the works that you do. And you've got people like Zwingli and, and Martin Luther and um, John Calvin and in, in France and in Germany and, and Switzerland and all over. And, and all these people are growing in these vibrant churches. And if you go to Europe today, you see less than 4% of the population even attends church on a holiday, Easter, Christmas, anything like that. It is, it is just gone. They're mostly gone now. Do you think this can happen here in America? Oh, yeah. 
See, when, when I think that don't boast and think that you're something because you can become removed out as, as Gentiles, I, what I see is that those churches, they, they basically essentially died for, for whatever reason, but they just they let go of the gospel there. Well, in verse 24, it says, For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, I don't know much about horticulture, but the way that it usually works is this. Normally, you've got good branches from a good tree, and they will take those branches off, and they will go to like a wild tree that's not really producing much fruit, but their, but their roots are really strong. And they will graft it in, and because of that root, it will provide life to that tree that really wasn't there. And what Paul is saying, contrary to nature, what God is doing is he's taken from the bad tree and he's sticking it on the good one. And that is just contrary. And, and, and so I'm told the good branches are grafted to the bad tree, but here God does the opposite. And he grafts the wild one onto the cultivated tree. And then he says this, and God has the power to remove the Gentiles and to regraft in the Jews into the tree they originally grew out of. Makes sense, right? He could regraft them because that's where they came from. So it should work just fine. But see, perhaps the most impactful point as I was reading this is, is what kind of hit me. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to remember I'm no longer attached to the wild olive tree anymore. I'm no longer attached. I've been cut away from it by the gracious act of God. I've been cut off from that. That's not where I receive my life anymore. I receive my life from a totally different tree. I've been grafted into the cultivated tree. I belonged over here. And God cut me off over here and He set me up right here where I don't belong. So cool. I've been grafted in to His grace and His kindness. If God has done something that incredible and, and that wonderful for people like me who I'm just dumb enough to hear what God says about Jesus Christ and wow, that's amazing, that's true. And I have faith in that. And He says, I'm grafting you into this, this tree. I'm going to give you of the lifeblood of, of Myself. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit in your life. If God can do that, why would I think that it's crazy at all? Why would anyone think it would be a big deal for God to restore believing Jews when they repent and when they believe? And that's Paul's point. If God can do something just miraculous by giving life to all y'all who don't deserve it and don't belong, then He can easily do it to, to Israel who grew up in there. And then, and then he continues and he says, verse 25, for... I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part, or, or a partial hardening, depending on how your translation says, has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. So, Paul has this phrase that he uses. He says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. And whenever he says that, it's, it's important. He's drawing our attention to something that he's emphasizing. Um, Harry Ironside, he, he read this and he said, you know, this is the largest denomination in all of Christianity, the ignorant brethren. Okay? <laughs> I thought that was funny. Even better, if we have any single ladies here today, this is like a portion of this. This could be like your, your, your verse while you're looking for a, hundred, a husband. Um, the girls at Baylor University... Uh, in the girls' dorm, they, they put a placard on the wall that says, I will not have you, ignorant brethren. What a great statement. I will not have you, ignorant brethren. Right? That's, that's, your, that's your statement. Well, all right. I thought those jokes would be much more hilarious than, than the way that they came off. They were funny to me. Well, Paul, Paul basically reveals to us a mystery. A mystery is something that is written down in the New Testament that it, was, it wasn't ever known before. It, 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 mean, it, was a mystery. it was something that nobody knew this. And then God says, I'm just going to open the curtain. I'm going to let everybody see. I'm going to reveal it to, now to, to everybody. And so he says, here's the mystery. I'm revealing it to you now. God is openly revealing it to everybody. And the mystery is this, that the blindness or the partial hardening of Israel 
it's only going to last until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Uh, Jesus says that we are living um, in, in a time called the, the times of the Gentiles. So Luke 21, 24, Jesus talked about the times of the Gentiles. This is the time set that we are living in. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, things change. That's when God is going to do something different. There will come a time when the last Gentile person is going to hear the gospel. They're going to come to faith. And at that point in time, there will be a drastic change in the course of history because God is going to open their eyes, soften their hearts. They're going to awaken to understand that Jesus Christ is their true Messiah. And then he writes, he says, he's quoting Old Testament, verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. And concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now what does that mean? As Paul is writing this, he's thinking that they, they are enemies in the sense of the progress of the Gospel. The Jews were the main ones that opposed him. And they said, we don't want this message going out anywhere. We're going to do whatever we can to stop this. They were actively against it, doing their best to keep people from hearing it and from believing it. So in that sense, they were enemies. But then there's another sense, on the other hand, that they're the chosen people of God. And their love because of God's covenant with the patriarchs, with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and all their descendants, the promises of God, they go all the way through, all the way down to, to everybody. God makes promises, and what do you do with His promises? You hold them to it. Why? Well, because in verse 29 it says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If there's one verse that I would love for you all to know and maybe even to memorize, it would be this one. That the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And while this is specifically talking about the gifts and the calling of Israel or to Israel, that God called Israel, right? And He gifted them in so many different ways. This is actually a principle that's true about God. He's not talking about Israel here. He's talking about God. That the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so what this means is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've received a calling, you, you've been given gifts and the gifts and the calling of, of God, they are irrevocable. God can never, ever go back on His Word. And this is like one of the things that is just so... Um, it brings a great assurance. When I look at the things that happen in the world, the things that are happening, and the things that happen in my life, and when, when maybe I'm out of kilter, I'm not walking and stuff, I'm off, you know, whatever, and, and I turn back and I look at the Lord and it says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And I remember that He's called me. I'm, I'm His. And then He says, well, in verse 30, for as you were once disobedient to God yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. Now that is kind of something to wrap your head around, so instead of me explaining it, I'm going to read to you what John Stott summarizes. Because he's got it well. He says, basically, he says this. You receive mercy by their disobedience. You meaning Gentiles, their disobedience, that would be the Jews. Whereas they will receive mercy by your mercy. You'll be merciful to them. That you're going to try to share with them the truth about who Jesus Christ is. More fully, it's because of disobedience, because of disobedient Israel, that disobedient Gentiles receive mercy. You and I and everyone in this room, you know what all of us all were? Disobedient. That's just what we were. We were disobedient. And yet, God shows mercy to us disobedient Gentiles. And it's because of that that the disobedient Jews, they're going to receive mercy also. This is the way that God is working. I'm going to read one, one other 
commentary, Cranfield, he summarizes what we've learned so far. And he summarizes it this way. He says this. Disobedience is likened to a dungeon in which God has incarcerated all human beings so that they have no possibility of escape except as God's mercy releases them. Because Galatians 3.22 says, The Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge, it was our custodian, to lead us to Christ. God's the one that pulls us out of the muck that we were in, and He says, I want you to come with Me, and I'm going to hold, hose you off, I'm going to graft you in to real life. It's all about God, it's not about us. That He's the one who does it. Well, let me... Alright, so how do we summarize all this? What's the final application of all this? Well, let's just ask a few questions and answer them. The very first thing is, what should our perspective be on Israel, on the nation of Israel? So if you have um, Jewish friends, co-workers, you know people, or, or maybe you're here today and you're Jewish, I'm, I'm glad that you're here. I hope that this is, is helpful. I'd love to talk with you more about this. I mean, uh, yeah. Well, how do, you, how do you perceive Israel? Well, first thing is you should be respectful. Just like you should to everybody. Next thing is, is, is don't be cocky, don't be condescending. Um, back in verse 18, he says, Don't boast against the branches. If you do boast, remember that you don't support the root. The root supports you. Why shouldn't you boast? Because it's by grace that you've been grafted in. You didn't do anything to deserve it. it wasn't because of your good looks, or your intelligence, your great inventions. I don't care what it was. Gentiles have nothing to boast over Jewish unbelievers. Christians have nothing to boast over anybody else. All we can do is boast in the Lord. Look at the Lord's grace and what He's given us. I'd love to share that with you too. It's His to give. And He's asked me to, to, to give it to everybody I can. See, because it's through faith. It's by grace through faith and it's through Jesus Christ. Secondly, there, there's a warning to all of us. Every one of us in the room who, who's a, a Christian. Um, if, if we were to, if we were to um, present a picture of the kind of tools that we have in our tool shed that God has given us, or maybe if you want like the tool shed, you like the kitchen idea, fine. If you were to, to present a picture of the kind of tools that you have as Christians, what would those tools look like? Would they just be all worn out and yucky and broken and not working or anything? Is that what God has given us? Nah. They would be the best. The question is, are we using them? Are you using the things that He has given us? Are you living for yourself? Or are you living for the Lord? Are you just living yourself trying to take, yeah, look at the accumulation of my shiny tools. Or are you looking at things that God has given and said, this is not for me, it's meant for other people. And so then, therefore, you go out and you try to, to use it to reach people for Jesus Christ. This is the great commission. Our commission is to make disciples. How well equipped do you think our church is? How well equipped do you think we are? Because I think that, that, that some of us are very well equipped. Some of us are newer to the faith. And, and man, you get a pass and we would love to equip you. But for some of you, you have been a follower of Jesus Christ for years and years and years and years. And you are well equipped. How are you using those tools that God has given you? Thirdly, are you doing your best to make other people jealous? And I don't mean in a bad way. Um, I mean in the sense that God has been gracious to you and you just want to display that and show that to other people so that they could have it. Um, back when I was about 17, I met a girl who I couldn't explain. Uh, I talked to this girl. She was actually an intern from California, came to Colorado, her and a guy, two interns. They were going to work all summer long with our youth group and kind of teach our youth group kind of how things went and how they did things at the other youth group in California. 
and and um, it was it was good to get to know them. But this girl was different. She was I don't know what it was, but the way that she lived, the way that she spoke, the way that she acted, I'm like there's something different about her. And I would just kind of I didn't want to stare because she would think I was looking at her. But I'd kind of look out of the side of my eye and I'd try to listen to what she was saying. And, how, and, I'm, I'm like, and finally one day, I still remember, I'm, I, I was standing by the edge of a, of a building and she was standing there kind of a little bit up a hill from me. And, and I still remember, and I'm like, hey, I, what is it that's different about you? I, I just don't even know. And she says, what do you mean? And I'm like, I don't know. But there's something, there's something that's different. And you know what? She didn't even know that she was doing it. But do you know what she was doing? She was making me jealous. Showing me that there was a vibrancy of life to be had that I had never experienced before. There was this vibrant life and she was living it and she was rejoicing and joyous. And even when things didn't go well, it was... And I'm just like, what is your deal and, and I'm just like, what is going on? And she was just, she, she, as she explained it, it just kind of went over my head. I didn't understand. But, but I, I, I knew that there was something different about that. See, there, there's, a, there's a challenge in something like that to all of us. It's radical. Are we willing to kind of step out, take a step of faith, reaching to the community around us, to, to our workplaces? To our neighborhoods? Are you, are you willing to just kind of step up and, and just start talking and, and letting the good news of Jesus be infused in all that you do? I want to close with a, an email that I received last week from, um, uh, from one of our elders. And, and I read it and I was just like, wow, this is just so great. And I'm, I'm changing the name of a person who he was talking with, but he, he rewrites me this email. I'm just going to read it. He says, I just had an hour-long conversation with one of our vendors. He, he called me to ask a, a product question, but clearly that wasn't why he was calling. It's a long story. After talking for five minutes, he asked how I was doing with my religion. I asked, what do you mean? And we talked about very deep things about Christianity, how Christianity is deep, different than Buddhism. How God could become a man. And if, since he believed in a higher being, was he still a bad person? etc. He asked what I meant by being born again. I quoted Romans 3.23 explaining that sin means to miss the mark. And the mark is, is the glory of God. You can never hit it. And so God became man to do that for us and He offers this to anyone who will come and ask. That's what it means to be born again, to be given the life of Christ. And I said, um, changing the name, I said, Jim, Let's imagine you had a son who was in real trouble. Wouldn't you do anything, everything you could do to save him? Would you take his sin, his pain, even trade places with him if you could? Oh, you just hit a nerve, Gary. Now I'm getting emotional, he said. In the end, it turns out that his son was injured in football and he got addicted to opioids. He was a great athlete, A-plus student, and now he's a wreck. And this guy, his dad no longer knows how to help him. He said, For a long time I wondered if I would go into his room in the morning only to find that he had died during the night. In our conversation, he kept referring to Buddha. I said, Jim, that's a philosophy. No philosophy can give life. Only Christ can give you life. His life. Eternal life. To live life with. And trying to quote Dallas Willard, I told him this. I said, God's address is often only discovered when we are at the end of the road. Isn't that a great quote? God's address is only often discovered when we're at the end of our road. And he said, tell me what to do. I told him, get alone. Get on his knees. Ask God to show him the truth. Because the scriptures say, you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And I end up praying for this guy on the phone. And he was truly thankful. See, listen, we are not in this thing for us. We're in it for others. We have been given the grace, grafted in. All of this has been for other people. Yeah, Paul's directly talking about the Jews. Okay, fine. But who is around you right now? Whoever is around you, this is the person who you want to share 
the life of Christ with. That you want to provoke them to jealousy. That they would see the great things of God. And it's not that you're something special. Let me just tell you, you aren't. Any more than I am. It's God who is special in us. And that's who we point to. And see, that's what we need to walk away with today. Thinking, this is how I need to live my life this week. Would you, would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, first I just want to praise you for this one verse that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Thank you so much for your calling to us. Like Romans 8 talks about. And that you're the one who picks us up out of the grime and the slime and you hose us off and you clean us, you clothe us, you put us in our right mind. And now you send us off to live for you. Not just to be good little boys and girls, but to take this news, this special news of the gospel of Jesus with us everywhere we go. Father, I pray for our church that we would be people who talk about it, who live it out, who are constantly pointing to Jesus and all we do, not sure who might be looking. And I pray that you would use us, that we would show a vitality and a vibrance of life that exists, that other people don't have, and they would say, how can I get that? What is it? And I just ask that you would make us a church of people who do this, and that we would live faithfully, and that we would not be a people who boast, and that we would be accountable to you and that we would not uh, take pride in whatever it is, but we would know that you are the source of all of our blessings. And so we want to live for you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for our church. I pray, help us, Lord, be the kind of church that you will use in our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, Grace Point. It's great to see you today. Have a wonderful day. Let's go out and let's go be the church. You're dismissed.